0: Hi everyone! I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. Over the weekend, I had the pleasure of participating in this year's virtual intelligent speech conference alongside other great educational podcasters, including Robin Pearson from The History of Byzantium, Zachary Davis of Ministry of Ideas, Ryan Stitt of The History of Ancient Greece, and yes, Kevin Stroud of The History of English. I'm a long-time fan of Kevin's show, and many of you probably are too. That's why I'm so excited to share with you the audio from a talk that Kevin and I gave at the conference about the Proto-Indo-Europeans. The central question we investigate is, why is the Proto-Indo-European story so unknown? Like, why is it confined to obscure academia? It takes us about two minutes to get the ball rolling, but I left the virtual conference banter in to give you a sense of actually being there. If you'd like to see the video, I've posted a link to that in the show notes. As it turns out, there's a face attached to this voice, and there's a face attached to Kevin's voice too. Um, quick plug to support the show, you can make a monthly donation at patreon.com wordsforgranted, or a one-time donation at paypal.me wordsforgranted. All your contributions make a difference to supporting this totally independent educational endeavor. All right, I hope you loved the conversation, and if you have any thoughts on it, feel free to send me an email at wordsforgranted@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Okay, everyone, uh, here we are. Uh, this is part two of Kevin's talk about uh, the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Um, this time around, he and I will have will be having a looser conversation um, about the Proto-Indo-Europeans. So if you came over from the last talk, welcome back again. Um, if this is for some reason your very first talk of the day, um, we'll do approximately 20 minutes of a conversation, 20 minutes for Q&A. Um, you can use the Ask a Question button that is at the bottom of your screen to submit your questions. Um, you can send them in at any time, um, and we'll address them uh, at the end of this. Um, so Kevin just wanted to wrap up one loose end from uh, the previous talk.
1: Uh, I was going to say that it's, I was reading the comments on the sideboard when we were done, and someone made a comment about, I held up this earlier, showing platus from Greek, uh, giving us the word plateau, and someone say it reminded me of, of the word platypus. And I should mention that platypus is that, that root where platus meaning foot, and pus is the Greek version of pet. So it means foot. So platypus is literally flat-footed. And in the word platypus, p you can hear the P's in Greek, whereas English would say the same thing, flat-footed. Those are just the English versions of the same words with the F sound at the beginning. So I just thought that was interesting.
0: Um, okay, fantastic. So Kevin, I guess I'll just sort of set a framework for um, our, our conversation I'll set us up and then you know we can sort of improvise um, so my the, the main question that I'm interested in and perhaps I should preface this by saying that um, one of one of the ways that I got into um, studying the proto-indo-europeans was through, Kevin's podcast. I don't know if you know that, Kevin, but uh, yeah. Back, yes. Back in 2013, something like that. Does that sound right? Yeah.
1: Is that when it's you started? Yet. Yeah. 2012. 2012.
0: Yeah. So I, I had um, done some, you know, prelim- preliminary independent research on the Proto-Indo-Europeans, found it really fascinating, found the history of English podcasts, And I said, oh, this is totally fantastic. Um, and it just raised this question. Um, why don't more people know about the Proto-Indo-Europeans? Why isn't their story uh, widely told? Um, And now if you're here, I'm just going to assume that you have some sense of who the Proto-Indo-Europeans are. Um, And the Indo-European language family is the largest language family spoken in the world today. I think it's something like 3.2, 3.3 billion native speakers. um, And that's something like half of the world's population. And we as English speakers, everyone here at this conference, uh, probably many, if not most of your friends and family, um, are all English speakers. And we are the direct linguistic heirs to this prehistoric group of people, the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Um, which is not to be confused with uh, being their ethnic heirs, which is something that we'll talk about uh, soon. So this fact alone that a several thousand year old group of people that were originally confined to, you know, not not a small geographical region, but a relatively small geographical region, given the modern distribution of, pro- of Indo-European languages, um, that very fact that this ancient group of people um, directly is impacting almost... All of the words that I'm using right now to talk to you um, is fundamentally fascinating and profound to me. Um, and that fact would seem to make them like one of the most important people to ever walk the earth. Um, and yet most people outside of very specialized academia um, don't ha- have never even heard of the proto-Indo-Europeans. and if they have, they have a vague sense of who they were. Um, and I would include myself, in that latter category um, before I took on this uh, this independent research of my own. Um, So the question is why? Hmm. Um, And I just want to read a very quick paragraph. It's actually the first paragraph of yet another classic resource um, on Proto-Indo-European studies um, in search of the Hmm. Proto-Indo-Europeans. published about 30 years ago, so some of the scholarship has been updated, but the general presentation and premises still hold up. So let me just read this first paragraph. By the first century AD, historical records reveal peoples settled from the shores of the Atlantic to India, all speaking languages closely related to one another. These are the Indo-European languages whose origins can be traced back to a common ancestor that was spoken in Eurasia some 6,000 years ago. We call the people who spoke this ancestral language The Indo-Europeans or Proto-Indo-Europeans. But although we can give them a name, they are unlike almost any other ancient people we are likely to encounter. As the linguistic ancestors of nearly half this planet's population, they are one of the most important entities in the prehistoric record, and yet they are also one of the most elusive. No Proto-Indo-European text exists, their physical remains and material culture cannot be identified without extensive argument, and their geographical location has been the subject of a century and a half of intense yet inconclusive debate. Uh, We've gotten a bit more conclusive uh, on that last point, but I think um, this paragraph sort of um, implicitly answers the question, why don't we know more about them? Um, And so I I have several ideas um, just taken from this. Um, And they don't fit into the way that we teach history. The Proto-Indo-Europeans um, don't fit into, say, like a great man approach to history, where we, have followed, we follow the achievements of leaders, or at the very least, we follow uh, people and what they did. Um, but we don't know a single Proto-Indo-European by name. Uh, we don't know specifically what any one Proto-Indo-European did. So we can toss that one out. Um, We also study civilizations. Well, the Proto-Indo-Europeans did not have a civilization. Um, They were pastoralists that moved around. Uh, We don't have buildings from them, and the archaeology that we do have is sparse and, um, as already stated, inconclusive. Um, How else do we study history? We also study literature, the writings of the people, and although the Proto-Indo-Europeans gave us their language, um, they lived before the invention of any written script. Uh, so they haven't left us they have not left us texts that we can read. So what that means is in order to tell the Indo-Europe, the proto-indo-european story, not only do we need to rely on um, very specialized fields of academia including linguistics, archaeology, ancient history, which also includes religion and mythology, um, but we need to synthesize all of these fields into a coherent story and quite simply that's hard to do. Um, you need to understand a lot in order to distill it in a uh, into a coherent narrative. Um, but I really wish more teachers, writers, scholars stepped up to do that task because um, I just think that their story is fundamentally interesting. Um, and another thing that makes the story hard to reconstruct is that much of what we know is hypothetical, as Kevin indicated in um, the previous talk. Um, but one thing that is not hypothetical is DNA evidence, which uh, there has been some light shed on um, Proto-Indo-European DNA. And I know Kevin has something to say about this, so I'll stop talking and pass it on to him.
1: You're good. You're doing great. I I agree with everything you said. I think the one thing I would add is, and this is just a different aspect of what you just said, but one of the reasons why... The you know knowledge of proto of, of the original Indo-Europeans is not widely uh, widely spread widely known, is because it was so uncertain. It was the subject of so much debate and argument, and almost anything you could say about the Proto-Indo-Europeans uh, was you would get into almost fisticuffs over it at one time. And with that being the case, you know, how do you teach that in schools? You know, how do you teach that as history? And I think, as I noted earlier, over the past few decades, there's starting to be a consensus as to who these people were. We no longer think of it as just an, a linguistic concept. We, now start, we can now associate it with a specific group of people, the Yamnaya people who lived uh, you know, north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And I think that's going to allow this to become uh, a more documented you know, historical development. And maybe over time, more people will learn about it as it becomes more generally accepted. Uh, I noted um, in, in the podca- I noted in my presentation earlier and also in the podcast that there is one main competing theory. And that is the fact or the argument that the Indo-Europeans lived south of the Black Sea at a much earlier date. And let me kind of give you the argument for that. I said I was done with my my handouts, but I, I'm not. This is a map of, of the world of Eurasia. Um, we're basically talking about this area right up here, north of the Black Sea and Caspian Sea. But there are people who believe very strongly that the Indo-Europeans live down here in what is modern day Turkey. And they believe that they moved, they lived there about seven, six or seven thousand. BCE, as opposed to three or 4,000 BCE, so a few thousand years earlier, and they migrated here through the Balkans into uh, Europe and then maybe migrated that way down into India. The, the argument for that was based on the fact that that's, that's when agriculture spread into Europe. Prior to that date, Europe was populated, very sparsely populated, but populated by hunter-gatherers. And around that time, around six or seven thousand B.C., uh, farmers emerged out of Anatolia, modern day Turkey, moved up through the Balkans into Europe and established farming, fixed settlements for the first time. And it was thought that they must have brought the Indo-European language with them. Uh, Again, the the the. The linguistic evidence, though, pointed more to north of the Black Sea, where you had wheeled wagons were common. Uh, the geographical features—I won't go covered all of this in the podcast—but uh, so that created part of the of the discrepancy. Recent DNA studies have helped to explain this, and these studies were conducted uh, 2015, 2016. So they've all been done since I talked about the Indo-Europeans in my podcast. And what the, the DNA evidence tends to indicate is that, in fact, yes, uh, the, the DNA of, of ancient uh, hunter-gatherers that, that have been uh, the bodies that have been unearthed, the bones that have been tested, show that they're completely different DNA than the farmers that came up from Turkey, Anatolia, uh, around six or seven thousand BC, maybe a little more recent than that. Um, but eventually, what happened is they displaced the hunter-gatherers. And their DNA you know, became the dominant DNA in Europe for a while. But then, about <laughs> the, within the time frame of the, Indo, of the Yamnaya people, so around you know, 3000 or so BCE, there was another massive migration, the DNA shows, out of the steppe region into Europe. And also there's a similar migration going into India as well. And that migration uh, was established in this DNA study that tested 69 skeletons of ancient people, both Yamnaya people that had been discovered and other people in Europe. And uh, of those 60, I think there were nine from the Yamnaya culture and four from the Corded Ware culture, which was a culture in northern Europe, uh, north of the steppe where the Yamnaya lived. And what it showed was that... um, 75% 75% uh, of the DNA in the corded wear region uh, was replaced with the omnia DNA. So that was a significant um, development. And there was a similar transition uh, that occurred in Western Europe. I'm looking over at my notes here. Uh, skeletons that have been tested in Europe itself show that 90% of the earlier population in Britain say that again, in Britain, 90% of the DNA was replaced with people that had Yamnaya ancestry. Uh, and so, or people that carried some genetic trace, okay? They weren't pure Yamnaya, but they carried some genetic trace of Yamnaya people. And this is very important because there is this distinction between genetics and language. It's very important because languages are not necessarily tied to genetics, People learn languages of all races and ethnicities, and languages spread, um, not necessarily due to migration or conquest, but people just learn languages, dominant cultural languages. It's what's happening to English today. So just because the Indo-European languages spread throughout Europe and, and South Asia doesn't mean there was necessarily a conquest. People could have just learned that language. But the DNA evidence is suggesting that there was a significant movement of people. And uh, now, does that mean they were conquered, that the Yamnaya? Well, the Yamnaya were pretty fierce people, apparently. They were, they were, a lot of the words in their language point to a pretty fierce culture. But there's also another factor here that's uh, fascinating and, and very apropos, given where, what, where we are today. Uh, and it has to do with plague. Scholars looking at DNA think that one of the reasons why the Amnaya people spread so far, so fast, is they carried a uh, plague with them. And if we go back to the 1300s, we have the Black Death that ravaged Europe, that killed about a third of the population, some places nearly half the population. Well, as I talked about in the podcast, when I talked about it, the, the plague uh, that plague began in Eurasia. Uh, And it spread through trading networks into Europe. Well, it appears that what happened, happened in Europe is the first wave of the plague was devastating. People who were susceptible to it died out. People who were better able to fight it, who had some resistance to it, survived. So they passed on that genetic trait. So when the plague came back around a few years later, it killed a lot of people, but not as many. And then it came back again and again and again, and it killed fewer fewer people each time on average. What happened is people you know, established a certain degree of resistance to it. And what, what some modern scholars think happened is this same plague, same fleas or you know that same bacterium uh, existed in the Eurasian steppe for centuries and that the Yamnaya people had built up a certain resistance to it. And when they spread into Central Europe, they carried those fleas and that same bacterium with them. And there's actually evidence of that in some of the DNA um, where some of the bones of the bodies that have been discovered have evidence of that plague bacterium uh, in their teeth, which shows they probably died from it. And so that may have been a major factor in the spread of Indo-Europeans or the Amnaya people is they just carried disease and plague with them and it didn't necessarily murder and kill everybody but they just the populations died out leaving a lot of yamnaya left over i will mention one last comment on that in the podcast i'm getting ready to get to the age of exploration so we'll deal with the european colonialization of north and south america and we usually think of that in in political terms but if we think about it in linguistic terms it's really just a later day indo-european migration because now most of North and South America speak an Indo-European language, and it was essentially the same process repeating itself all over again, if that's what happened originally. Because, as you probably know, a lot of Native Americans died out simply due to disease that Europeans brought with them. So there, there is this connection, apparently, between disease and linguistic spread that recurs throughout history.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fascinating point. I mean, I, I was thinking about this um, actually as you were speaking. You know, someone in Brazil, someone in Afghanistan, and someone in Albania all speak, uh, like if, if you're speaking the native languages of those, uh, or I, sh- I should say the standardized languages of those countries, because because native is a, uh, um, you know, native implies something else that implies an indigenous language, and Indo-European languages actually displaced the native languages of these countries. Um, of these regions, countries, and states. But um, today, by and large, if you are born in Brazil, if you're born in Afghanistan, if you're born in Albania, if you're born in England, you speak an Indo-European language. um, And the people from those uh, different countries probably have little ethnically in common. Um, So yeah, I think that covers half of why the proto... Oh, I'm sorry, to go say
1: and, and maybe this is what you're leading to, but this gets into a very dark area, as if talking about oh, plague well, and life, death, was I think I think I'm going there. Go ahead, go there, no, I know no, where no, you're bring- going.
0: Um, well, I was going to say that the second main reason that the proto-Indo-European story is not well known to the public is because for much of its history, the scholarship has been co-opted by dubious and pseudo-scientific nationalist agendas, um, most famously the Aryan race during World War II. Um, So, Indo-European scholarship has a pretty unflattering history. Um, So, let me, I have a lot to say about this, Kevin, you can interrupt me at any point and and say what you wanna say. so yes, the Indo-Europeans are responsible for the myth of the Aryan race. And yes, it is a myth. Um, but before we talk about that, um, what does that word Aryan mean? Um, we, we, we've, we've heard it in the context of Aryan race and we think some like superior, um, light-skinned, tall, blonde, blue-eyed um, people. Um, but the word actually has a much older origin than that. So Aryan is a word originally found in the Indo-Iranian languages Um, And quick crash course, Um, the Indo-Europeans who would eventually migrate to modern-day Iran and India were once part of a single group that then fractured off. So those two groups are actually very closely related linguistically and genetically. Um, And in the ancient Iranian uh, religious scriptures called the Avesta scriptures, um, they were part of the Zoroastrian religion of ancient Persia. Um, In those texts, um, we find a people that call themselves the Aryans. Um, And Aryan is actually the etymological root word of Iran. Um, So that's in Iran. And now in ancient India, in the Rig Veda, which are the foundational scriptures of ancient Hinduism, um, Aryan is used as a religious designation for those Indo-European peoples living in India. Um, And I I actually, I. can't recall it off the top of my head, but there's actually an ancient Sanskrit word for India that has the word Aryan in it. Um, if someone knows, they can drop it in the – if anyone is a Sanskrit scholar here in the audience, you can drop it in the uh, chat. Um, so that's where we get this word from. And if we disassociate that word from the ethnic connotations, it was simply a word, an Indo-Iranian word that meant noble, excellent, or great. So these people applied that word to themselves as a people, um, as an ethnicity, as a religious group. Etc. So that raises the question why in the world were religious and ethnic terms from ancient India and Iran co opted by Nazis during World War II as the basis of a um, superior white, blonde, blue eyed race? And uh, yeah, so before the term Indo European emerged, Aryan was the primary term used. Uh, and that's because during the 19th century, when historical linguistics was getting underway, um, with particular momentum in um, Ger- Germany, um, the ancient Iranian language was the oldest attested Indo-European language. And and like I said, those people called themselves the Aryans. Um, So because at that time, that was the oldest extant Indo-European language, 19th century um, European intellectuals um, made the mistake of thinking that these Aryans were actually very close to being the Proto-Indo-Europeans themselves. Um, Yeah. Um, So they got this idea that the Aryans were a pure... Unmixed race that over the thousands of years of migrations, invasions, and so forth, that they became um, ethnically diluted, um, and that somehow the Germanic peoples were the direct ethnic descendants of this original race of peoples. Um, and you know, there was these scholars were citing uh, support for this in ancient Roman authors like um, like Caesar and Tacitus, who, upon their first um, contact with Germans, um, they described them as a pure race. Um, But as scholars know today that Romans uh, are, the ancient Roman historians were not the best ethnographers and anthropologists. Um, So there are a ton of problems with linking the Indo-European language to a race of people, which I think we've already um, demonstrated. Um, But in the 19th century, scholars working in the field of um, historical linguistics uh, didn't know that. Apparently that wasn't clearly obvious. Um, so you have um, Western European um, anthropologists and linguists sort of working together to fuel this um, this scholarship that's describing um, um, g- German racial superiority, um, or I should say Germanic racial superiority, based on uh, this notion of the Aryan race which again ultimately um, ha- has its links to the indo-european discovery um, and the linguist the, lingu- the, the anthrop I can't really speak much to the anthropology the a- anthropology scholarship I know that there are some ways of like measuring the skulls of uh, of uh, Germanic populations and comparing them to other Europeans and other races and somehow that indicated some um, superior mental fitness um You know, this is all pseudoscience Um, that was taken very seriously at the time. Um, But one way that the linguists used um, the reconstructed Proto-Indo-European language to support this notion of a a superior race was they said, look at how sophisticated the Indo-European languages are. And the Indo-European languages are what we call inflected languages. That means that... um, We can modify words to reflect things like tense, um, plurality, um, you know, sing, sang, sung. These are all the same word with a vowel modification. Uh, Run, runs, running. We're adding different suffixes. Um, So these Western European scholars said, hey, look how sophisticated um, this language is. And then they compared this to other non-inflected languages of the world, um, Um, So for for, for example, um, Chinese is what we call an analytic language, where um, we don't add these little suffixes or modify words. Um, Things like tense, plurality, aspect, etc. These are determined by word order. Um, And uh, yeah, just just moving around words. So these scholars said that's a very simplistic language. um, That's not very advanced. um, And these Proto-Indo-Europeans perfected their language. And you know, maybe, Kevin, you can speak to, uh, speak to this, that the, the notion of perfecting a language is, one, absurd, and two, that's not actually what the Proto-Indo-Europeans were doing uh, on the Eurasian set. They weren't sitting around, like, meditating and perfecting their language.
1: No, I mean, I think you nailed it. it that's As I noted in the podcast, a lot of the early research, as it just happened to turn out, uh, was con- in the realm of proto-indo-european studies was done by german linguists and um, as i noted, noted in the podcast those sound changes are generally known today as grimm's law associated with jacob grimm of brothers grimm fame uh, because he helped to identify the specific sound changes that occurred within the germanic languages but uh, there were many other linguists in germany and austria in that in that region Early on, in fact, uh, the the vast you know the bulk, the vast majority of the research was done there, and that fed into it as well. It was it was partly had to do with German identity and establishing the idea that in the past there was a a pure Germanic people with a pure Germanic language, and it gave the German. Uh, nation, the right to recapture those territories and bring them back in and unify the German peoples. The problem with all of that, of course, is it's just not based in reality. And in fact, the DNA evidence really points to how flawed of a concept that was because the Yamnaya people themselves were not pure race. The same study that I mentioned, the Yamnaya who lived up here that we think were the Proto-Indo-Europeans, Their DNA shows that about half of their population were native uh, herdsmen of that region. The other half of their DNA apparently comes from south of the Caucasus region uh, that the tribes moved across. And that's very unusual to move between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So their DNA was mixed from the very beginning, two different groups. And then as they moved into the corded ware communities, they mixed further. And then they continued to mix so even though the the DNA evidence shows the expansion of DNA, people carrying you know strains of that DNA, they weren't. They, there were no pure-blooded people. You know there have always been mixtures of people. And uh, as I noted in the first part of my discussion earlier, the language itself was never pure. Proto-Indo-European. We think of it today as one thing. It's just a collection of related dialects. So any notion of purity has, has always been ridiculous. But it, it did it did have its moment. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's, it seems like, I mean, the only way that you can make an, a purity argument is if you, if you cut off historically, like before a certain point, right? Like if you say, okay, before 3000 BCE, if we ignore all of this, now it's pure because, you know, we're not looking behind the curtain. Or if you say, okay, uh, Uh, We're only going to look at the uh, genetic evidence from 500 CE and then ignore everything else. And if we start from that point, then we have a basis for purity. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, I hate that expression, but truly for all intents and purposes, uh, unless we're to like infinitely regress to the beginning of time where there is, you know, the, the emergence of people, that people have always been inter intermingling.
1: And we should note, too, that the studies of Indo-European languages began uh, in conjunction and around the same time as Charles Darwin was uh, you know, proposing the theory of evolution, which um, had as one of its basic ideas the, the idea of survival of the fittest. And that got wrapped up into all of this as well. And it's part of the reason, arguably, why we have family trees of languages may be pulled in part from from some of that as well. But uh, the idea that there was this, you know, if if Indo-Europeans spread their language across such a vast population, then they must have just been genetically superior. And again, these were the notions that kind of got mixed together way, way, way beyond anything that linguists were saying, uh, or even geneticists were saying, early geneticists, into the realm of pseudoscience and, you know, people twisting and manipulating the facts to, to, you know, promote whatever, you know, harebrained political theories they have. And, you know, that still happens today, but, you know, it, it, it just pointed to the, the danger of the way in which so much of this information could be misused and was misused. And it's something that we still have to be careful about today. I know that the, the study that I mentioned earlier, this DNA study, Um, David Reich was a professor at Harvard who helped put that study together, one of the contributors. And I I read his book uh, recently. Uh, I I was familiar with the study, but then I read his book about it. And he mentioned how just the idea that the DNA showed a a spread of a genetic population carrying language uh, freaked out some of the German scholars that were contributing to the study, one of whom resigned, just because just the way in which that type of information had been misused in the past he did not even want to be associated with with a DNA study that might show something similar uh, again even though what the DNA study shows is just genetic traits um, but again it just shows you how how controversial and how even potentially dangerous this topic can be if it's not handled properly because there are, are always going to be people out there that are going to try to twist it and misuse it and I, my only advice to anyone listening to this is be very wary of that if you hear someone trying, because I will guarantee you there are people right now as we're speaking somewhere on the internet espousing these same theories. Uh, just understand, language is language, DNA is DNA. There are times when the two may show may overlap a bit, but
0: they're not the same thing. Yeah, Um all right, maybe we should turn to questions. Um, one quick thing, um, Damon pointed out, I, I mentioned earlier that there is a Sanskrit word for India itself, I- including the word Arya, uh, a- Arya, and it's Aryavarta, uh, that is the word that I mentioned. Uh, thank you for whoever looked that up. Um, okay, we, we went way over time with our talk, hopefully everyone uh, enjoyed that. Um, So here are the questions. Question one, are there any links between Proto-Indo-European and Magyar, or did Magyar remain totally undiluted by Proto-Indo-European? If so, do you have any thoughts on how, why that happened, given that they're pretty close geographically? Um, I, quite frankly, don't know.
1: Magyar is uh, generally categorized as part of the Uralic language family, which is a separate language family. Uh, but many linguists believe it to be related to the Proto-Indo-European language family. Uh, it also includes within it Finnish and uh, a few other languages. Um, I can't recall. Hum- all Hungarian. It. Well, Magyar is yeah, Hungarian. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so it uh, it appears, I think my understanding, I haven't studied Magyar enough to really be able to speak to, definitively about it. But my understanding is that it is believed to be tied uh, perhaps to uh, Eurasian tribes like the, H- the Huns, but other groups as well, who came into Europe during uh, earlier periods of invasions and brought uh, Eurasian languages with them and may be tied to that. But, um, but it's not an Indo-European language, uh, at, nor is you know, the Mongolian languages. Um, the Turkish language, which also has origins in Eurasia, is, is not you know, an Indo-European language. But again, there are scholars who think, who advocate for what's called a Eurasian language family, a greater Eurasian language family. And they, they would put the, the Mongolian languages, Turkish languages, Proto-Indo-European and the Uralic languages all together within this larger family that originated in, uh, in the Steppe region. Uh, but again, that's controversial. All we can really say, I mean, I, linguists would say we, we know what we know based on reconstructions. And and that takes us as far back as Proto-Indo-European. Anything beyond
0: that is just speculation. Um, okay, this one is for you, Kevin. Do you have a historical date at which you plan to end your podcast? <laughs> I, you
1: know, I guess whatever the, the date I prepare, you know, my last podcast, I mean, whatever that date is, uh, whenever I catch up to that time. Um, here's the thing, I I don't really have an answer to that because I don't really think that far ahead but I am going to try to take it into the 20th century, the podcast is going to evolve a bit once I get beyond the great Vowel shifts because up until now, it's been a know i've been able to weave together political and social cultural and linguistic events and develop a theme and kind of approach it that way but after we get into the 1500s and certainly into the 1600s we're going to have too much going on we're going to have english spreading around the world so we'll have english you know increasingly in ireland we'll have it in north america eventually in india so it's, it's just going to make it more difficult. So it's, it's going to become, as I envision it, more of a chronological podcast, trying to trace it out in segments of time, what was happening. And uh, right now, my goal is to take it as, as, you know, all the way up into the twentieth, 21st century, I suppose.
0: Okay, next question. Um, did other Indo-European language branches like Celtic, italic, germanic, etc. continue to evolve from descendants of the Yamnaya proto-indo-european speakers or from each other? Uh, Do they share parent languages or grandparent languages?
1: Well, that's a a matter of some debate. I do think that there is a commonly held theory that uh, the Celtic languages and the italic languages, so that includes Latin, probably originated from the same branch, so that one time there was a migration of speakers uh, that then later separated and formed those two distinct branches, and that's due to some linguistic similarities and the fact that the early Celts lived in uh, central, south-central Europe, kind of north of where the italic speakers lived. Uh, So that's a possibility, but again, uh, it's difficult to say for certain. Uh, the Baltic and Slavic languages, it's generally, generally agreed that they were originally one language family that split. That's why they're sometimes called the Balto Slavic languages. And the, uh, the, in, the languages of Northern India and Iran probably emerged or initially were, were one language that split. That's why it's sometimes called the Indo Iranian branch. But as far as we know beyond that, it appears that the Germanic languages uh, were distinct, not not really evolving out of another language family. Though the Germanic languages, they have a lot of root words that come from somewhere else. Uh, When you look at the core vocabulary of a language, the words we tend to use most often that we learn as small children, those tend to be the oldest words in the language and tend to be the ones that go all the way back to the Proto-Indo-Europeans. But in the Germanic languages, we have a lot of words in, in the core vocabulary that come from somewhere else. So it appears that there was a mixing in northern Europe between the Proto-Indo-Europeans and some other group. And that's a matter of some debate as well.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not recalling the exact connections right now, but there, there are some, some ideas in the scholarship that Greek... At some point, may have all, have like split off from Indo-Iranian. Um, do, do, you, do you know anything about that? Off the top I, of your head, I don't
1: know about that. But the, there's a tremendous amount of dispute still about the uh, the Anatolian languages, right. and that that provides that connection there. Uh, and again, I won't get into all the details. But i I mentioned Hittite as being a um, the first branch or descendant of the Indo-European languages, but there are a lot of people who argue that it's a sister language, and uh, that's a a debate for another day, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I I, I think DNA and archaeology aside, I think that, and we have 30 seconds left, so we can't really get into this now, but there's also a fair amount of linguistic evidence to indicate that um, the Indo-European languages in Anatolia um, were intrusive uh, upon um, earlier populations, non-Indo-European populations. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Well, that's it for this talk. (laughs) I had had a great time. I hope you all did. Uh, Thank you, Kevin, for agreeing to do this with me. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Ray. Bye. Thanks,
1: everybody.